Please remain standing and open up your Bibles to Colossians chapter 1. We're going to take a one more week outside of Romans. But today we're going to look at Colossians 1 beginning in verse 15. In verse 15 it says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel you have heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Please be seated. So I wanted to start this morning by giving you a a hopefully sincere thanks on behalf of those that went to Utah. Thank you for allowing us the time to do it. Uh, We had a great time with friends and brothers and sisters at Desert Ridge Baptist Church. We've been going there for the last three or four years, and we've been going out in the city of St. George to help with evangelism, to help with VBS, and to encourage believers that live in a very difficult place for the gospel as they're surrounded by a majority of Mormons. I'm pleased to let you know that this year, Desert Ridge had a record number of children. The the most we've ever seen in a VBS has been about 30. I believe there were 60, not including workers, there. So it was a great time with the church. Uh, The the gospel was preached. Uh, We had time to be goofy and play with the kids and... uh, and and love on the church members there. But during some downtime with the pastor there, Michael Waldrop, I was reminded of the differences of our so-called religions, ours being a true representation of the gospel and Mormonism being wacky. I'll just put it that way. We talked about Mormonism, we talked about Jehovah's Witnesses, and these religions all agree that there was a historical Jesus. But we have very different ideas of who that Jesus was. If you were to ask a Mormon if they worship Jesus, they would wholeheartedly say yes. And they would say that he worshiped the same Jesus that we do. But if you look in their teachings, you'll see something very different than what the Bible says. In Mormonism, God the Father was once a man and somehow worked his way up to being a god. Mormons deny the Trinity and believe that the three persons of the Godhead are three separate gods, even though they will fight tooth and nail with you to say that they are not polytheists. 
but they can have thousands of gods because man can become a god. Jesus, according to Mormonism, was the firstborn spirit child, whatever that means, of God, the Father, and a mother God. He's the brother of Satan. He, had, he came to flesh via a physical conception between God and Mary. They believe that virtually all people will be saved, but only believers of Christ can access that highest level of heaven where Jesus is. They will tell you they believe the same things that we do, but this is clearly not true. If you ask a Jehovah's Witness, they'll tell you that they also worship Jesus. They'll say we're doing it wrong, but they will say they worship Jesus Christ. But they will deny the Trinity. Jesus was a creation of the Father, some lesser God. When Jesus came to flesh, he was only a man. He had no deity in him. He was only a man. There's no physical resurrection, only a spiritual one. My favorite thing about the Jehovah's Witness is that the second coming has already occurred. It happened in 1914, and we all missed it. Salvation is heavily dependent on works in both of these so-called religions. I'm reminded as we walk through Romans, we've heard over and over again that justification is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. So who Jesus is critically important if we hold to that truth. We don't get to decide what kind of Jesus we want to have. We don't get to decide based on how we feel that day. We don't get to say, well, what does Jesus mean to you? Scripture is clear on who Jesus is. Who Jesus is, what he accomplished, and how he accomplished it can only be found in Scripture. Charles Spurgeon once wrote about discernment, saying, Discernment is not knowing the difference between right and wrong. It's knowing the difference between right and almost right. This is why our theology, our doctrine, our study of these things is so important. Because when it comes to Christ, when it comes to who he is and what he's done, being almost right leads us to be entirely wrong. And if we're entirely wrong about who Christ is, we don't have justification before holy God. So this is where we find in Paul's letter to the church at Colossae, this church is a church that Paul had actually never been to. He never visited this church. But knew through the founder of the church, who most likely heard the gospel from Paul in Ephesus at one point. Paul wrote this letter because he'd been told that heresy was very slowly creeping into the church. They were changing who Jesus was by introducing ideas from Greek philosophy and from Jewish legalism. According to this Colossian heresy, they were beginning to believe that Jesus was a good emanation of God, some lesser God, some created being, most likely an angel. Because of this, angel worship started happening. And not just Jesus, but any angel they came up with. They believed that angels were essential to salvation. This heresy began to deny the deity of Jesus Christ, and it denied the sufficiency of Christ for salvation. Because of this, Jewish legalism started to creep in. 
because from Greek philosophy, it couldn't possibly be just Jesus for salvation. It had to be Jesus plus some special knowledge plus some special action that had to happen. So Jewish legalism came in, and they started fighting about dietary laws, holy days, festivals. These things became necessary for salvation. So Paul writes this letter to the church to correct them first and foremost, but also to encourage them to hold fast to their faith and to correct these false teachings. You could sum up the theme of the entire book of Colossians in Colossians 3.11, just the last few words in Colossians 3.11. It says, Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Christ is all and in all. So I chose this text today to serve as a reminder for us and an encouragement for us It reminds us that Jesus is the founder and perfecter of our faith. And he is preeminent. He is all. He is in all. He is preeminent. He surpasses all things. And through him, that's how we're reconciled to God. Not through anything that we do. Not through some lower emanation of God. But only through Christ, who is preeminent in all things, provides our salvation. So Paul, in the book of Colossians, after his greeting, after his uh, expressing thankfulness for the church, after his prayer for the church, the very first thing he starts with, he starts with a foundation that sets the tone for the entire book. He starts with the idea that Jesus wasn't some prophet. He wasn't some great teacher. He wasn't just some moral man. He was the perfect reflection of God the Father. In verse 15, it says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Many people will tell you that the Bible never calls Jesus a God. They haven't read the Bible. Because here we see in that one short little verse, the clear, just an absolutely clear statement. Jesus is fully God. Paul wrote in Romans 9.5, To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. In Philippians 2, Paul writes, Have this in mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even on the cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of the Father. In Titus 2, it says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself up 
for us to redeem us from lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Paul tells the church that Jesus is the image of God. And that's not to be confused with we're created in the image of God. Because what did we do with the image of God? We marred it. We sin. And it is not a perfect image of God. But in Christ, we see a perfect reflection of God the Father. In every way possible. The exact image of the Father. His nature is an exact image image of the Father's nature, his power, his character, all of God's attributes are perfectly reflected in Christ. And this is why Jesus can rightly say, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Take the invisible God, the God that no man has seen, you see him in Jesus Christ. When asked, when Philip asked, Lord, show us the Father, and it's enough for us, Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and you still don't know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? So not only is Jesus the image of the invisible God, Paul says he's the firstborn of all creation. Now, a lot of people twist this verse, the Mormons especially twist this verse to see, to go, hey, look, see, Jesus was created. He's the firstborn. He was the first thing created. But that's not what Paul is saying here. Paul is talking about a position of honor that we would understand. Jesus sits in the position of the firstborn. Everything that belongs to the Father belongs to Jesus. He is the Son of God. Paul makes no mention anywhere of Jesus being created. So we need to remember, when we see that Jesus is the firstborn, we're talking about a position of honor, how highly honored Jesus is. So just in our very first verse of our text, Paul relates the person of Jesus Christ with the Father. We can get an understanding of how this relationship works. Jesus is the perfect reflection of the Father. Jesus is a person in the Godhead. Jesus is God. But he goes further, and he starts to relate Jesus Christ with all of creation. In verse 16 and 17, it says, For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. This strikes right at the heart of this Colossian heresy. The Colossians were beginning to fall prey to the idea that Jesus was a created being. That Jesus was, at best, an angel. They were beginning to see see Jesus as some lesser creation of God. According to them, the creation story would have looked something like this. In the beginning, God the Father created the spiritual realm. And then God the Father creates the lesser angels or gods, one of which is Jesus. 
Then the Father allows Jesus to create the material world. This is what this heresy looked like. And if you've ever dealt with Mormon theology, with the teaching of Joseph Smith, this sounds pretty familiar. But just as in Paul's time, these ideas are blasphemy at best. At best, this is pure blasphemy. And at worst, it's a damnable heresy. So let's read again in 16 and 17 how Paul corrects this. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth. This is is key. This wipes out the argument that the Colossians are making, or beginning to make in the church, of God created the spiritual, but Jesus created the material. No, he created all things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So Paul here is showing Christ's primacy over creation. By him all things were created. The Gospel of John would wholeheartedly agree with this. In John 1, verses 1 through 4, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. Turn to Hebrews chapter 1 and tell me how we get away from the central idea that God created, that Jesus is God. God was in the beginning. Hebrews chapter 1, if you'll bear with me, we'll read the whole chapter here for a second. It says, Long ago at many times and in many ways God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things. Through him also created, through him also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purifications for sin, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you? Or again, I will be with, I, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let, the, let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels uh, winds and his, and his minister a flame of fire. But of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will wear out like a garment, like a robe, you will roll them up like a garment that will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will have no end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? 
Jesus' act in creation was not just through the material world. It was all things in heavens and on earth. It was the visible and the invisible. All things were created, created through him and for him, and he was before all things, and in him all things hold together. The fact that the world doesn't fall apart today is only through the work of Jesus Christ. The fact that our eyes work the way that they work, the fact that the complexity of the human body, the idea of gravity, of physics, of you name it, is only through the work of Jesus Christ. So Paul, having described the relationship of the person of Christ to God the Father, having described the relationship between the person of Christ to the created universe, now goes on to describe the relationship of the person of Christ with the church. In verse 18, it says, And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Paul starts off with the idea that Jesus is the head of the church. There's lots of metaphors in the Bible for Jesus and the church. You have a husband and a bride. You have a vine and branches. You have a shepherd and a flock. But this is by far my favorite. The church as a body, and Christ as its head. And body and head here are meant literally. We're not talking about a band or a body of people that has a leader. The picture is, is, is literally of a body. We get this full picture in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. It says, For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in the Spirit we were all baptized into one body. Jews and Greeks, slaves were free, and we are all made to drink of one Spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If a foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I don't belong to the body, that would not make it any less part of the body. And if an ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged all the members of the body, each one of them as he chose. If all were... It, well, we'll stop there. All parts of a body. And the head controls every part of the body. Without a head, all the parts don't matter. All the parts would not function, they wouldn't survive. But we have this picture, and this is where Paul starts. Christ is the head of the church, not just the guy in charge. He is the beginning of the church, the firstborn of the dead. Again, we got to look at firstborn the right way. The, the honorable place of primacy is what we're looking at. He is exalted before all others who will die. In Philippians chapter 2, it says, And being found in the form and human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, 
so that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. Through his death and resurrection, he is highly exalted, set in that position of the firstborn from the dead. Lastly, in our description here, it says, For in him the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile himself all things, whether on earth or heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. The church has no need for some lower emanation of God. It has no need to worship angels because of who Christ is. In the fullness of God, if the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in him, we have need for no other besides Christ. This verse, these verses should be crushing for any other gospel. With just a glimpse of who Christ is and what he's done, it should annihilate the belief that God would need anything else for his plan of salvation. In Jesus, we have the fullness of God, and in man, we have the wretchedness of sinners. These truths should crush any idea of justification coming anywhere else from Christ. But recognizing who Jesus Christ is, learning of his work on the cross, recognizing the fullness and the completeness of works points us to the beautiful truth in this. If we finish out our text, it says, And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. <coughs> Excuse me. If indeed you continue in faith and, and if you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. This is the true gospel. As we sat through our teaching lab yesterday, we, we heard it said many times looking at, at Galatians, if, if anyone preaches a different gospel, let them be accursed. If it's one of the apostles, if it's an angel, if it's someone else preaching a different gospel, let him be accursed. So here is the true and only gospel, that Jesus Christ, being fully God, put on flesh and dwelt among us. He did what no man before or after could do and totally fulfilled the law of God. He proclaimed to be God, and he proved it by dying a sinner's death and raising from the dead. Through his perfect obedience, death and resurrection, he willingly took on the fullness of God's wrath, which each and every one of us is fully deserving of. But he stands in our place and takes on that wrath. So read, read these last verses with me again. And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, has now, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister. It's important for us to remember, especially as we're walking through Romans, if you've heard it once, you've heard it a thousand times by now walking through Romans. 
justification is. I, one of the kiddos answered for me. Salvation is by what? One of my kiddos better get this. Is it by works? Wait, what is it, June? Faith. That's right. It's, it's God's grace alone through faith, and it's Christ alone. It's nothing else. We need to be reminded constantly of who Jesus Christ is. Because other religions have made their own Jesus. But don't doubt for a second that well-meaning Christians also get very close to doing that. They like their baby Jesus at Christmas or their Easter Jesus at Easter or the, the Jesus that softly knocks on your heart and says, can I come in? But I'll wait out here until you tell me I can come in. That's not who Paul is talking about here. He is talking about the creator and sustainer of the universe. The Jesus who's fully God and fully man. The Jesus that is the perfect image of the Father. The Jesus who in all things in heaven and earth were created through. The Jesus who has justified those who believe. This is not the Jesus that many preach. This is not, this is definitely not, the Jesus that the Mormons profess. This is not the Jesus that the Jehovah's Witness profess. It's not the Jesus that Islam teaches. of. All of us should agree with this. But just as blasphemy and heresy creeped into the early church, we also have to be really careful today. Not only from the heresies of religions like Mormonism or Jehovah's Witness, but from the error of compromising this gospel. We need to hold fast to the fullness of who Jesus is. Again, he's not some weak, ineffectual God knocking on the door of our heart. He's not a genie in the bottle that if you want to be rich, you can be rich. If you want a new boat, you can get a new boat. He's not just some wise prophet that had a great way of living life. Now, many will tell us today that that's, that's really harsh. You can't tell me who Jesus is. I, I didn't do it. It's, this is who Jesus is. But I'm here to tell you that there's nothing more in this world that should bring us more peace, more assurance, more hope than this. Salvation's a work of God. If it were a work of man, no one would ever get it. The God of the universe, the creator, the sustainer, the perfect image of goodness and morality, that's who offers salvation. And he makes it dependent not on us, but on him. This is who grants us the faith needed for justification. Not only does he say, you have to have faith in me, he says, I will give you faith. And most importantly, this is the God that guarantees our faith. I'll, I'll leave you with this today. What, what do we do with this truth? 
I, I sat for actually quite a while yesterday trying to figure out what, what my ending was going to be of, I, I need something, something real. What, what, what do we do with this? And then I decided I'm the worst person to write this. So I'm going to go back to the Puritan John Owens, who gives us, I think, the perfect response to what we do about the truth of who Jesus is. So John Owens wrote this. The revelation made of Jesus Christ in the blessed gospel is far more excellent. It's far more glorious. It's far more filled with the rays of divine wisdom and goodness than the whole of creation. And the just comprehension of it, if attainable, can contain or afford. Without this knowledge, the mind of man, however priding itself in other inventions and discoveries, is wrapped up in darkness and confusion. This, therefore, deserves the severest of our thoughts, the best of our meditations, and our utmost diligence in them. For if our blessedness shall consist in living where he is and beholding his glory, what preparation can there be? Read that again, my favorite part. For if the future blessedness shall consist in living where he is and beholding his glory, what preparation can there be for it than the constant previous contemplation of that glory as revealed in the gospel? That by a view of it, we may be gradually transformed into the same glory. That's what we need to remember about who Christ is. All the things that Christ is, the creator, the sustainer, it, it's so different. The, the Mormons probably have this very great picture of one day becoming like God, becoming a God. But they got it so wrong. Because you don't need an extra revelation. It's right here. It doesn't say we become God. We become like Christ. And again, that's not our works. If it was our works, we'd fail at it every time. So let me read that last sentence. For if the future blessedness, if what we look forward to consists of living where Christ is, if it consists of beholding his glory, what preparation can there be other than constant contemplation of that glory and where is that revealed? It's revealed in the gospel. That by a view of that glory that's in the gospel, we may be gradually transformed into the same glory. So my prayer for you today is that we wake up every morning and try and remind ourselves of who Christ is not relegate him to some weak, ineffectual God. The same God that said to Job, who are you, O man, is the God that provides us with our faith. It's the God that provides us with our salvation. Nothing can tear it from us. This should be hugely encouraging to us. The same God that guarantees our salvation is sanctifying us into the image of his son. So my prayer is that you remind yourself of that daily. Get in God's word. 
take a moment throughout your day to meditate on the person of Jesus Christ. So join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, our, our words, a, a short sermon, can, can never show the fullness of the person of Christ. We can spend our entire lives seeking after that and not come close. But we thank you that through the work of your Son that you grant us salvation and you promise to conform us into the image of that Son. Lord, let that weigh heavy on our hearts. Let it guide how we speak to each other. Let it guide how we love each other. Let it guide the things that we do, the things that we watch, the entertainment that we have. Let it, let it guide every aspect of our life. Let it weigh heavily of who your son is. As we continue to, to worship, I ask that you would prepare our hearts for the taking of the Lord's table today. I ask you the, the, that you would bless this time together. It's in your holy and precious name we pray.